I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo, Rose Choice, and this is another round of uh, podcast interviews, and this is number 101. Now. You've been watching us, been following us, and you know how we call him the commish. We call him Mike Wallen has been with us now, uh, helping us out for years. And, and this is the first time we've actually sat down to talk about his career. It's no secret. The guy is the head coach of Chicago Rowing Foundation. The guy is the head women's eight coach for the junior national team heading to Italy this summer. He took gold last year. And like, I don't know. 60 days ago, the guy won the national championship in the women's eight at youth national championships. We're going to be talking about how he went from rowing in Philly to then becoming the head coach of Chicago, winning a national championship. Uh, and then spicing up a little bit, the, the new theme this fall is getting into training, how he trains his athletes, what he does differently. Mike, thanks for being here. Hey, excited to do it, man. Finally sitting down with you to talk about it. I, we talk about it all day long, but now we actually like have a recording to be done. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to fill in the blanks because I know your whole career, but tell us, where were you? How old were you when you took that first rowing stroke? I was 14. Um, I had gone to uh, St. Joe's Prep in Philadelphia. Uh, the Prep. Yeah, Prep. Um, as everybody knows. And uh, yeah, I never intended on rowing. I never intended on going uh, to St. Joe's Prep. As far as I know, I'm the first uh, Wallen to go <laughs> of many Wallens who grew up in that area. Um, but, um, yeah, I just, I wanted to get in better shape, uh, for the next basketball season. I had just finished my freshman year, uh, playing basketball to prep and, um, you know, I played baseball growing up, but, uh, was just kind of bored of it and looking for something to do. And, uh, tried rowing sounded like something that was challenging um and had no idea that the prep was uh such a storied program in the sport or anything like that I just kind of showed up and started working out and uh driving my coaches nuts uh with my antics and um yeah just at the end of that season uh, I wasn't really in love with rowing at that point I just uh, at the banquet I could just see that literally every guy on the team was going to Ivy league schools or Cal Stanford, Georgetown type schools. Um, and you know, that, that was my real motivation for going to the prep was I wanted to go, uh, to college and I wanted to go to the best college I could. And it, it became clear that rowing might be a, a pathway to one of those schools or make it, uh, you know, more of an option for me. So I was, uh, I was all years at that point. So, I'm, so I got to get my timing right, because you were there at the prep with Fife, uh, another yeah prep guy, the guy's currently running the program there. We're all yeah, uh, guys. All Bill, of, Bill, all of Bill us Lamb. Yeah, so, Bill so Lamb. Bill Lamb is your coach, right? So this is like, what, 96, 97, 98? My freshman year was 96, yeah. 96. So prep, a powerhouse, right, at that point. You, you guys are going to Henley. You guys are winning Stotesbury Cup, uh, synonymous to success. Uh, how about like, what kind of success did you find in those four years? Like what were the biggest races that you had won in that span? Uh, my junior and senior year, um, I was in the varsity eight that won uh, nationals. And I believe uh, in 1999, we were the U.S. rowing crew of the year. We were undefeated um, and went over to Henley and we lost. Um, that was our only loss, um, unfortunately. And then my, my teammates returned uh, the next year in 2000. Um, and brought it home, won the, won the race. They finally got me out of the boat and they won. <laughs> now, your, your, your stats are, are pretty cool. You're like six foot five, right? Six foot six, give or take. I would not, um, never, never six foot six. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm like uh, six, four and three quarters, if I'm being extremely honest. But we can call me, we can call me six, five at my tallest in the big shoes. Yeah, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say six, five. So you're six, five and uh you're playing basketball did you play basketball all four years of high school as well as rowing so like were you doing this like two sport combo yeah I mean if, if there was something that I would say I went to the prep to do other than eventually go to college it was to play basketball you know I, I was committed I was the captain of the team um I was an all-catholic player I uh, loved basketball still love it um but that was like 
that was like my favorite sport and rowing uh, became the sport I was best at. Now, like with Bill Lamb, I know that guy pretty well. You clearly know him better than I do, but was he okay with you spending four months out of the, out of the winter, just playing basketball? Cause like you're rolling up in March, having not done any erging and then jumping in a boat. Right. So yeah. what was the dynamic like? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think he probably would have preferred that I trained. Um, certainly I would have been in better shape by the time the spring came around, but um, I think, I think it's a good thing. I think he understood that. And I certainly do as well. If someone's, athletic enough to be playing another sport um, at a high level, they're not going to come in completely hitting the ground running uh, with the fitness, but they'll probably uh, be pretty valuable to your team um, if they're that gifted that they can, you know, be an impact player in another sport as well. Now, you, you, you end your, your season 99 going into 2000, you head to Cal, right? So if people have been following your career, everyone knows you're a Cal Bear. Um, a guy growing up in South Philly, a guy growing up in South Jersey, California was so damn foreign to me. I never would have guessed or thought that I would have gone there. Why Cal? Like what, what got you to leave the state and go all the way across the country? Um, I mean, <laughs> I didn't even know they were good, if I'm being honest. I didn't visit. Um, I just, uh, you know, Craig Avercanyan is uh, a pretty good recruiter and he was, you know, talking to me the way I like to be talked to. And um, they offered me a scholarship. It was a great school. And uh, yeah, I just was, I kind of found out at Henley when I met some of my future freshman teammates from other countries that, wow, I, I think we're gonna be pretty good. And, and that my senior year when I went over to meet Craig and meet Steve for the first time was at the IRA and they had just won the IRA. So they had just won the IRA. I met them for the first time. Previously, I'd just spoken to them over the phone. And uh, then I met some of my teammates at Henley. And I was like, oh, my God, like this team's this team's the best team in the country. Here we go. Um, and uh, yeah, was definitely ready to go to war with some really fast athletes by the time uh, that next fall rolled around. You know, it's wild to me. You know, we you, you get and it wasn't because you were talented. Like you just found the right place at the right time. You're with Bill Lamb one of the best coaches in the territory, in the region of where we, you and I grew up with a program that has a history of success going back 50 years before you even started there. And then you had Cal who arguably Gladstone is the greatest collegiate coach to ever sit in U S soil. So like you got so lucky to have had those eras. Um, I mean, have you, I mean, I don't want to say like, what do you think about that? But that, that's got to sit pretty well in your, in your mind right that you've been that lucky yeah I mean I wouldn't say I was totally lucky I mean everybody every I mean the prep going I mean yeah I can't I can't say it's not lucky I, I feel fortunate I guess fortunate is a better way that I would describe it um a lot of hard work went into all the success uh from myself and the guys but um you know I feel very fortunate to have gone to the prep you know certainly changed my life in a great way I don't I don't think I would have been who I am or where I am had I not gone there um and you know the, the prep has been you know such a, a good team for so long you know it's just you know it's are you lucky if you go to Duke and play basketball I mean no they're for a reason right I mean they're always good um and that's kind of how I felt about Cal um being there um but I yeah I mean I there was many times in college I mean it was, it was still a grind for sure but there was many times in college where you know, you don't want to do it or you're kind of getting tired of just getting beat down every day and going back to it. Um, and I, I've never, I, to say I'm lucky, I've, I've never been on a bad team. Like I've never been not on the best team. So um, my experience has been, um, I think it's been easier for me to find motivation because of that. You know, when you're with people that are that driven and the the possibility of being the best team in the nation is a real possibility. It's not just something that your coach is telling you to get you excited. You all feel that energy and it does make it, I think, I don't, I don't know if easier is the right word, but it does make it uh, the pursuit of practice and how hard you're going to go. That's, that's, it's just more seamless. It's just more natural. Like, you know, you're, you know, you have a chance to do something great. Um, and that just, that keeps you motivated every day. So you, you, you did you did this time with Steve Gladstone, this, the string of just winning IRA all the time. There's a couple of guys on your team that never even lost a college race, Luke Walton being one of them. Um, but you weren't always in the top boat. 
right? I mean, like you went from the prep being the number one, number two guy yep. to being middle bottom of the pack. Like kind of, what kind of culture shock did that have on, on you uh, going there? Um, it didn't have any culture shock on me personally at all. Um, you know, I feel like I'm as an athlete uh, in basketball too, you know, like I'm very comfortable being the best guy on the team and I'm very comfortable being uh, a role player if I have to. Um, and, you know, going, and I honestly like going to Cal, I think is what made me become, um, a pretty good coach, uh, because, you know, I, to be honest, I didn't really have to work very hard to be in the prep varsity eight. Um, I just, like you said, I'd roll off the basketball court within a couple of weeks. I was the strongest guy on the team again. And, um, I was just a better athlete than most people, um, rowing in high school. And when I got, so, you know, I didn't have to focus as much on small things or, um, you know, really think about what I was doing to beat the guy to get into the boat or to win the race against the other crew. When I got to Cal, um, you know, there were, you know, a long list of guys who were just like me or, or athletically better than me. And I had to, I couldn't just go out there and be strong, right? I couldn't just show up and be like, well, I'll just be the strongest guy today because I was never the strongest guy on the team. You know, I got close a couple of times, but or into that top, you know, eight range in power, but never was I the strongest guy on that crew team. And um, I think a hundred percent, that's where I really learned how to row, how to beat people with skill and precision uh, as well as power and going through that as an athlete and remembering, you know, what I told myself to figure out this move or that move um, I think has greatly enhanced my ability to teach that to young athletes now. And, Athletes, both like myself, who seem kind of, you know, athletically superior in high school and maybe don't need it. You know, I have a way to kind of get in their head like, hey, you're eventually going to need this or you could be even better if you did it like this. And also kids who, you know, are on the brink of making a high school 1B or 2V, you know, just kind of talking them through like, hey, like you're going to have to be a little bit more skilled. You're going to have to be a little bit more of an assassin with your blade or the way you pick the boat speed up to beat these bigger kids. But they can do it if they um, do it at a higher, you know, efficiency rate or a higher technical efficiency. I got this, this, this question like popped in my head here. Um, Mike Wallen from 96 was playing basketball and somehow got convinced to row. Yep. And our sport struggles with that, right? Struggles to find high level, even mid-level athletes in other sports to join the crew program. Like what, what was said to you and what do you think we can do to, to help, help that in other schools and other areas of the country? Nothing that was said to me would be helpful. Um, I found it on my own, just kind of out of boredom and wanting to get in, in better shape in the off season. Um, but I, and I, you know, I told you, I didn't really enjoy it um, that much. <laughs> I thought it was, I, there's plenty of things that I'm sure we'll get into uh, that I wish were different about rowing. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the thing, the thing I would I'd talk more about the things that made me love basketball. I mean, number one, it was, it was fun. Um, and I don't think we can ever make rowing as fun as a sport like basketball or, or football where you're running around and everybody understands it. But the main thing is um, those sports are glorified and, and well-known. And when you achieve um, there's, you know, a, a spotlight on you, you know, yes, the team won, but everybody knows, you know, the, that Michael Jordan hit the shot at the end of the game. Right. And there's a high school kid doing that, uh, right now somewhere in a summer league. Um, and everybody knows, you know, this guy or this girl was incredible. And yes, it's a team win. it's a team sport. I won't not saying it's not, but there's ways to quantify, you know, that guy or that girl really won the game right here. And rowing, that's harder to do. And also the sport seems by nature to not want to, you know, glorify or make a celebrity of, you know, standout players. And that was, that was probably the most foreign thing to me in rowing because every sport I had ever played before that, and I played a lot, um, you know, it was, it was always taught to be a good teammate, always taught team, team first, but certainly there was ways where you could be like, wow, like Mike had a great game tonight or, or John had a great game tonight. He really yeah. said, this guy scored 30 points. What, you know, you know, 
there's stuff like that. You know, in rowing, you could be having the greatest performance of your life um, and maybe the greatest performance on the course and no one will ever know about it. Yeah, you got you got me. You got me thinking, um, I, you know, you know, me. I take a lot of notes. Um, so what was the most successful maybe period or year you had a cow? Right. So like you, you were I, I think you made the frost eight your freshman year. I think you just you just got in there. What was the most memorable time? Uh, at Cal in those four years? They were all awesome. Um, you know, the, I basically, yeah, I was in the freshman eight. Um, back then, freshmen couldn't row on the varsity. Um, the, of, if they had, I think some of the guys in that freshman eight would have would have had shots at the 1V, if not uh, definitely in the 2V. Um, and then my junior and sophomore year, I was kind of the, the, the one guy out of the varsity. Oh, Less starboard out, so I was either stroking or sitting seven seat of the two V. Um, and then my senior year, I spent about half the year in the one V, and, and the second half in the two V again. Um, and in terms of which was the most dominant or which was my favorite, I mean, they were all pretty similar. I probably say that the first one was my favorite if I had to pick one, just because I feel like the first one always feels the best. Um, and uh, you know, because you you know, it's your first time rowing D one. You know, it's nice to. Nice to come out of the gates with a with a big win, um, and we also, you know, that was that was the only year of the four where I think we didn't know for sure that we were going to win to start the season. Uh, we were, we had, we had struggled early. Uh, we had an incre incredible crew in terms of horsepower um, and talent and people who had represented countries and all that stuff, but we had we really weren't rowing that well, and we lost uh, San Diego and the duel. Uh, and pretty, pretty soundly, it wasn't a close race and uh, we, we were second, but, you know, we were handled pretty easily. Um, and then we just kind of, just kind of clicked, you know, we finally clicked, we got all that horsepower together and, um, won pack 10 and then went on to win IRA by, uh, about, about two lengths over the field. It was pretty, pretty big. So I, I got two things about Cal one, um, I think every single person has ever been coached by Steve has a great Steve story. Is there a really good Steve story you got from those four years that you can come back to? Well, the ones coming to mind, I don't know, are shareable <laughs> in this setting. Um, yeah. Oh, just leave it at the, like, you know what? Anyone listening that had Steve, that's enough. I think that's probably enough. You don't need to get into detail. Um, let me think about how, how good of a guy he is, you know. Let me think about it. Uh, I don't have one ready. If I knew the questions beforehand, I could have come prepared for that. But um, let me so think. Let, let me get to the last Cal question. So um, Cal had their best year in 20 years. It just happened a month ago. Your buddy is their head coach, right? Rode with you back in the day. Yep. Um, how much Cal pride was going through you when, you when you saw that race and you see those guys go first, get first place? Oh, tons. I mean, we were all, um, you know, waiting and watching and we had the, I mean, with, with Steve's crew at Yale being so good and the crews not having uh, matched up in the regular season. And we had the pandemic year in between and we saw, um, how good Yale was the previous seasons. Um, you know, there was, I don't think there was a sense of, of total confidence going into it. But there was there was a lot of confidence. You know, we I I I was trying to be honest with myself. Do I think Cal's gonna win because I just want that to be true, or or do I really just believe they're the better crew? And I kept feeling personally that they were the better crew, just watching them row. You know, some of those guys are just so big and strong. And I uh, got a good look at the live feed at uh, the Pac-12, and they just looked they just looked really impressive, really nasty. And it just, uh, you know, and talking with Scott throughout the season, you know, there was a lot of vibes of, of the energy and um, just even from reading some of their bios, you know, I kind of picked up on the just similar swagger that we used to have during our dynasty run. And it just, it just kind of felt like, yeah, I think these guys are back. Like, I think the cow crew energy that, that we had is, is getting picked up again and, and Probably Scott's got a, a lot to do with that being the being the head coach. How cool is it that Scott gets to race against the guy that 
spent all that time with him, you know, Gladstone. Gladstone's still in the game, still top of the charts. I mean, the guy got second place. Um, yep. Did you, I, I just think it's so cool, right? To have that that camaraderie and that connection. I mean, no, you guys I, want to talk about that? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's incredible for both of them, you know? Um, I, I know that Steve's, you know, very, very proud of Scott and, and all the people that, um, you know, he's coached that have gone on to, you know, be great rowers past rowing with him in college or become great coaches. And um, I'm, I know for a fact, he definitely did not want Scott to beat him. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I would, I'd be sure if you asked him, if there is anyone, if he had to pick someone who he wanted to beat him, had he have to lose, I think he would choose, you know, someone that, that he taught how to row and, you know, in some ways taught how to coach. Yeah, I, I really hope that the, the current Cal guys and the people around Yale know that connection, right? That Scott was there 20 years ago in the same position with the coach that he got, you know, second, you know, to. Um, so, all right, man, like, you know, you and I, we, we've known each other a couple of years now. I never would have thought you'd coach crew. Like, it's a funny thing. You, you have a love-hate relationship with rowing. It's your career. You graduate from Cal. At what point did you realize that, hey, I could, I got to do this for the rest of my life because there's a, there's a gap here that I need to figure out where that is. Yeah. I mean, I just started, you know, um, working in the Bay area and, um, the novice boys coaching job was open at Marin and, uh, the, my girlfriend at the time, her father was like, you should try, try coaching, man. You'd be great at this. They need a guy and, you know, it works with your schedule. And I was just like, yeah, I'll try it out. Sure. It sounds fun. You know, a couple extra bucks. I know about rowing. This will be, this will be fine. And, um, I was blown away by how different it is in the launch versus actually in the hull and all the responsibility you feel and, um, just how much talking and planning and everything goes into it. And, especially with those guys being novices, pure novices, you know, even just explaining what the drill is, not just, you know, mapping out a practice plan. Um, but um, I would say through about a month of it, you know, I really, really started to like it. And it was clear to me wow. that I was missing, I was missing not rowing and not necessarily playing sports, but I was missing a daily um, just quantified answer of how you stack up with, with whatever you're doing. Like, I, I honestly think if whatever job I was doing was like a, a constant, here's how you did today. And like, not good enough, good enough, really awesome. You know, just the constant like measure of yourself that, that I missed that a lot from rowing and just sports in general. And it's different in coaching, but it's, it's certainly part of the job. You know, you're, you're, you're evaluating yourself every day, like based on how you're getting these athletes to, come together. And, um, once that was back in my life, you know, I, I knew that it was something I at least wanted to explore keeping in my life for as long as I could. And I, I ended up quitting my job because I switched jobs in the middle of the season. And the second job I got was getting me to practice late and it was clearly screwing up the season and the season was going really well. Um, so I quit the job and was just sleeping on a couch to make sure we finish the season with, with the championship. Um, and I don't regret it at all because <laughs> it was from that point, I was just like, you know, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to find a full-time coaching job and just kind of see where that, where that goes. I don't want to, I don't want to look back and say that I didn't give this a shot. So, you know, you and I were both novice boys at one point, right? We were both 14 years old. Yep. That is the single worst team to coach like for anybody, I don't care who you are, 14 year old novice boys are the worst group of kids. They must have had a huge impact on you for you to say one month in, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I mean, that is a lot of <laughs> oh, I didn't know I was going to do it for the rest of my life, but I knew that I was going to um, continue to explore it. And then after, I mean, the season was great. I mean, those guys were awesome. Um, we had an awesome, like, I mean, both boats, I believe, were undefeated and won Southwest championships. And, um, we, you know, at the end of the season, I just kind of, I wasn't sure if I would get a full-time gig at that point. I didn't even know it was out there. And, you know, I was talking to my buddy about it, um, just saying, okay, I want to try this. I know this is kind of a crazy thing to, to jump into. Um, and he said, oh, there's some team in Chicago 
that's kind of just getting off the ground. Um, they're looking for a head coach full time. And uh, I was like, yeah, like send me the link. And I applied, flew out there, um, did it well, did a couple phone interviews, flew out there, did an in-person interview with their board. Um, and I mean, I wanted the job so bad because it was a full-time coaching job and I, I just felt like it have a big impact and um, that I almost packed my bags for the interview. Like I almost showed up for the interview with like my whole life packed up. <laughs> which I kind of wish I did because that would have been an amazing just fuck flex move. Just be like, yeah, I'm here. I already know I'm getting the job. Like, <laughs> here we go. I want it. I want it too bad. Or, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. You're a bum and you show up with Chris Farley with a fucking plastic bag. Of no, no, I, come on. I had a suitcase. I had a suitcase. It wasn't that. I wasn't that bad. So, wow. So, all right. So if I, I, I think I know my timeline here. This is like 0506. Yeah, yeah, head out to Chicago. Yeah. So, uh, and I, man, I was so excited. I couldn't believe that there wasn't like rowing there. You know, I, I mean, I'd never heard of uh, teams from Chicago rowing. You know, I know that Loyola Academy had a couple good crews. I think New Trier maybe had just started, but hadn't really gotten off the ground yet. And there, and even so, those those teams aren't in Chicago. They're they're you know, about an hour north of Chicago. Um, and that's, yeah, I was just like, I got there. They had no boathouse. They had um, just boats on the ground in a parking lot. Um, and I just, I loved it, man. I was like, this is really, because it was like, I'm kind of starting, I'm kind of starting off and this team is just kind of beginning. And I just, I just looked at the city. I mean, the river was not ideal and <laughs> it still isn't, but um I was just like, this is, this is a big city and they should have, they should have a good rowing team. And I'm excited to try to make that happen. So let me, let me, let me paint this picture here. You're about 25 years old, 24, 25 years old, right? Yeah. 24, 24. You're getting paid pennies to be the head coach of a yep. program that had boats in slings on the ground in a parking lot. Yep. So you've been there 16 years. Is that right? This is like yep. 16 years. Mm -hmm. So in 16 years, you got married, you got a couple kids, you built a program. So walk, walk me through this arc, right? So you guys were pretty much new, right? In 2006, Chicago Rowing Foundation wasn't really. It was the, the first season was 98, 99, but it was like kind of like it started as like a learn to row, like summer program. Um, and then um, they had, I mean, they, I think three years after that, so it'd be like 2000, 2001, 2002. I think they went to the Midwest Championship for the first time. Um, and then in 2004, both, they took both of their eights to uh, youth invite, um, which has since grown, grown into youth nationals. It was a much smaller race back then. There was only about 10 teams, 10 teams yeah. or something onto it. Was that Cincinnati? Um, was that like, was that in Cincinnati? Like that, that was. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was not the job I thought I was going to the prep and going to college to get, but once I saw it and once I saw what it could be, I just didn't care. I just was like, you know what, this, this team is, so I, I, I guess I just want to emphasize, like, I didn't like start the team, like Francie Minone started the team. There was coaches in place. Um, the team just like, it was kind of, it was, it was where it was. It was in the parking lot. There, there was kids on the team. Um, they were kind of looking, I think for the right person to come in and just say, Hey, like we're going to, we're going to do this at a really high level now. Let's just do it right here out of the parking lot. And um, it was great. And I mean, I can talk about the evolution of it if you want, but it was it was it was a rough ride for a while, but um, certainly we've we've climbed. Well, so I want to one thing I want to talk about is um, you know the focus on how to grow it, right? So it, it, briefly, it, it's I believe that you focus on the eights always, right? That's just my, my my mentality. You try to get as many kids you can, get success in the eight. Like, where do you sit on that, right? Because 16 years evolution, you guys are a really large program. You found, clearly found success, boys and girls, both sides, learn to row programs. Um, like, what, what advice do you have for the, the, the guy or girl in your position somewhere else? 
Yeah, row the eight. Row the eight and um, don't, don't expect to be the national champion like early on. Like you just, you can't do that. Um, you have to, you have to grow the team. You're not going to be fast. Well, you can be fast in a small boat with a small team, but you're not going to be fast in the eight if you don't have a big roster. So you have to, and if you, assuming of this, you know, at that time, I was lucky enough to have uh, Mike Tanner and Rick Booms um, kind of just, they weren't volunteering, but they were getting paid almost nothing to coach. And these guys were good coaches. And that allowed me to say, okay, like, I can have two novice eights, I can have two varsity eights on the guy's side, I can have two varsity eights on the girl's side and trying to get those numbers up. And then we brought in another coach, Austin Work, who was a good coach. And so I would say first finding, finding good coaches who can handle a two eight practice is important. And then you wanna fill those practices up with at least two eights, two novice eights, two varsity eights on each side, and then let that matriculate up, but find coaches. Um, because you don't want the growth to start happening. And then you don't have anyone to take these kids out. Because if you have 20 kids show up and you can only take 10 out, 10 kids go home and say, this sucks. And then they tell all their friends, this sucks. And then you get negative word of mouth advertising and word of mouth advertising is your best friend or your worst enemy. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you start chasing medals in pairs or doubles, then you make the whole team about two people. And that's, it's not, it's almost as bad as leaving those kids on land. I, I absolutely feel that way. And uh, yeah, two people have the opportunity to have success. And in the other scenario, you're coaching your 18 best athletes, two coxswains, two eights of rowers. So you can put your best coach with your best group and you can put your next best coach with your next group. And you can, the ratio of coach to athlete just makes it a better business. It makes your team better. Um, and it brings more athletes into your program and athletes win the races. Athletes. Right, so win. think about this because the argument on the other side is that a little team in Ohio, a little team in Arkansas, a little team in Utah wins the national championship in the men's pair. And they say, well, if I get, if I, if I'm that team and I can say that we're national champions, that will naturally bring in more athletes. So what's your argument for that when someone says that to you? My argument is that they're still a small team, so they're wrong. Uh, they didn't win the national championship. They won a race that the national champions didn't enter. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you can keep telling yourself any lie you want, um, but losing in the eight and making your team big and making your team understand that we're not here to just try to find an event we can win. We're here to be as fast as we can be as a group. And if that's not your mindset, enjoy uh, winning the pair um, if that's what you want to do. Um, and congrats. But um, if you want to be big and you want to stop complaining about how big other teams are, then you need to think big and you need to find a way to like well, is Salt Lake City, this tiny town, we can't we can't get 100 kids to row in Salt Lake City. We can't get 200 kids to row. It's impossible. And you, we think the pair is the only way that people will come out because they heard two guys won some race in some sport they never heard of. Like, that's not going to work. Like, you need as many people going back out into the community saying, I was in a really fast boat today. So was my friend. We went to a race. It was awesome. All of us are going to good colleges. You should check this out. Not two guys did well in a two-man boat somewhere. So you got you got you got your first national championship two months a month and a half ago, a uh, month ago, and um, actually a month ago to the week. So it's been thirty something days. You just won the national championship, but you've also had years where you've gotten fourth or fifth in the eight, but then your Jays won or your Jays got somewhere in the silver gold, you know, bronze year, you also had 14 gold medals in the Midwest championships. What do you find more rewarding as a program coach when a team has a lot of really good success and you guys have all that happening in one race or your top boat winning the national championship? Well, this was the first year they allowed two V's to come. Uh, actually last year they allowed them to race in the one V event. So, um, this was, this was our first national championship on the women's side. Um, and 
I think people are surprised to hear that. But um, again, back to my point, like I'm rowing that eight no matter what. So I would rather get 18th place in the eight and I have than win in a pair or win in a four or try to find something else. I'm, I'm very happy to enter those events after that. Um, but after the eight, so there's the top eight athletes at CRF, as long as I'm the coach, will be racing in an eight or not racing. Um, I was just telling the story the other night. I think it was, um, I think it was 2013. They were like, you didn't, uh, you didn't go to nationals in 2013. And I was like, no, they said, why not? And I said, the eight got fourth by a uh, photo finish and only top three could go. And they were like, and I was like, and I didn't enter anything else to go to nationals. It was that or nothing. Um, and, um, that's it. And you know what, the next year we were insanely fast. So you're hearing that and you think that it's a bad idea. I don't, I think it sets the, the right, uh, attitude in the room of, Hey, we're saying we're going to do this and we are going to do it. And if we don't do it, I don't have a backup plan for you to manufacture a successful season for yourself. A successful season here is that this eight is going to nationals. And now that they have a second boat, that is the second measure of success. The 1V and 2V will go to nationals and they will see where they rank at the end of the year versus the other best crews in the country. I want to get into some technical stuff now. Um, and uh, in, so in 2004, or 2000 to 2004, when I'm in mainland, we mirrored Bill Lamb's winter training program. So three by 20, four by 10, five by 1500, 10 on eight, seven, like those were the standard erg workouts on the water. We were doing a lot of long and lows, heavy pound for pound, seven minute, you know, seven minute pieces, race, race, nine times, three minutes. But you didn't have Bill Lamb in the winter, right? You didn't do those things. And I know that you have a bit of a different mentality when it comes to erging training. So I want to get into that. Like, what does a typical week at CRF look like erg training? Um, yeah, it's nothing like that. I think, um, I think the science behind those workouts is, you know, what created those workouts. So they're not, they're certainly not bad workouts, but so much of what we hear and so much what we read about and what matriculates down from the top, you know, um, is from Olympians and I'm not coaching Olympians yet. I'm coaching hopefully future Olympians. Um, if I'm coaching Olympians, like absolutely. Like we have, uh, volume. We have specific heart rate zones we want to be in for specific amounts of time. Um, and it's very precise. And I think that the, the general consensus among coaches is that we take that and then we implement that into high school rowing. And I just think that's, I just, I don't agree with that. I just don't think that makes sense. Um, yeah. And, and go ahead. Yeah. Back to the point. I didn't do any of those workouts, right. And do any of them. Yeah. Who, had, who had the best erg on the prep team? Me, right? I didn't do any of them. So what does that tell you? I mean, it's one example, but what does that tell you? It just tells you that, you know, people can get fast and get fit without the training plan. The training plan, whatever your training plan is, like it's not real. I mean, to some extent, it's about the amount of work. Like I can't have kids come in and row for five minutes and go home and expect them to be fit enough to win. But um, just because you have a kid do 80 minutes at whatever heart rate or whatever you want, doesn't mean you're getting a, a fast rower out of that. You know, like this, I mean, people talk about running a marathon and they put the sticker on their car and they ran an eight minute or eight uh, hour marathon. Like, it's like, what, what is that? <laughs> so, so then, then walk me through your Monday through Saturday training plan and you know, you're not giving away any secrets. So like, what, what, what is, what is your training? I'll give away all my secrets because nobody will want to do what I do because they don't believe me. Um, we do about, we erg three times a week in the winter. Um, we take two days off per week completely where we do nothing. And then on the other days, we just kind of lift weights and jog around. <laughs> we're like ride a bike. So, that, that, that right there is going to make 95% of rowing coaches out there be like, this guy's a moron. But however, you just came out with a national championship. So, you know, what you were saying earlier is you were a certain size, certain type of athlete, a certain type of person. You need those kind of people to row and to be, to find success in the, in the boat, right? Because 
I'm not putting Fife down. Fife's a really great coach and a great rower, but you can't have that guy go up against you size-wise, skill-wise. They're just, they're just different, right? They're just different. Um, that guy could row for three hours a day every day and still have a really hard time beating you, right? That's why lightweights have a hard time. Never, you would never beat me. Would never be, would never be. So, so then are your athletes doing things outside of these five to seven, six workouts that you're doing each week? Are they doing stuff on the yeah. yeah, some of them are. And I think, uh, and that's, this is something that I feel like I really learned from Steve. Um, and cause people, I think people, when they dissect what we did during that time, like it, everyone in our sport thinks there's like some secret workout or some secret way to be good at it. And it's, it's, it just, it, it confuses the shit out of me, this pursuit of like the secret drill, this idea that some guy who's physically inferior to me in every way could do some drill or like work out for a certain amount of time and then become my equal or my superior is insane. Think about any other sport like that doesn't happen. Like people get cut from a basketball team when they walk in, you're just like, nope, not going to happen. Like You can't play. Like it's obvious in rowing. There's no, there's none of that. There's no honest conversation about you are not going to be good at this. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You need to find something else. Everyone's just like, well, if you do this and that and that, you're going to be in the varsity. And it's not true. Do you have those conversations with some of your athletes, like the guys and the girls in the team? Like, do you have those upfront honest conversations with 17 year old kids? I, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you don't have to be harsh about it, but like, you know, yeah, I, I'm not going to tell some kid who I know physically isn't capable of pulling a score or beating somebody else. I'm not going to set them up with some false dream that that's going to happen. Have I been, uh, have I been surprised occasionally? Sure. And you know, the system's set up to surprise anyone you want. Um, and back to the, back to what I was saying about Steve with Cal, people look back on that stretch where we had, and they're always asking what the workouts were and how did we win and what did we do? And typically they're surprised with how little work we did. Um, compared to our opponents um, because Steve basically said, this is, this is the practice. You're going to need to find time on your own to get more work in if you want to be a champion. Mm. And that was great. And what he basically was saying was, here's the practice that I'm providing. It's going to be extremely high level. It's going to be extremely competitive. And then it's on you to find the supplementary stuff. And he knew, he, he knew full well that some guys weren't going to do it. Um, he knew full well that some guys were going to overdo it. Um, some guys needed to do more work every day to feel like they were being good enough. Other people needed to do it two, three times a week. Some people didn't do it and lost. Some people didn't need to do it and didn't do it. Some people had, some people were having a real bad week, you know, personally or with, you know, academic load. And maybe they took it easy that week. Other people maybe were like, I'm pretty free. I'm going to put in some extra mileage on the erg on their own. Um, and we all kind of brought the best version of ourselves to those afternoon practices and ultimately to the races. And that did two things. One, it made sure that we were getting the appropriate amount of work in. And two, it made it that we owned it. Like it was our decision to do these workouts. It was our decision to do more and, or not do more. And you know, live with the result one way or the other, whether that was not making the boat you wanted to be in or not winning the race you wanted to win. Um, and I didn't fully grasp that at the time, but looking back on it as a coach now, I think that was extremely important into why we were so good. Everyone owned what they brought to practice every day. It wasn't like, well, here's the next practice where I can try to make you fast again. Like the practice was like a, a very high level firm evaluation in the afternoon. And it was up to you to find ways to improve physically outside of that. Um, as a coach, so, so as a coach, are you are you vocalizing that consistently each and every year with your team that they have to own their own fitness outside of what I'm doing here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm doing it in a way where I'm not even encouraging them to do more. I'm telling them if you feel the need to do more, do more. Um, and some of the kids... And some of the kids are, you know, extremely into that and they get together and work out with teammates outside of practice. Some of them do it on their own to try to, you know, improve past their teammates. 
And other people just don't need to or don't want to do it. And if I force them to do it, they would hate rowing. And if they hate rowing, they're not going to be very good at rowing. And the way I set my workouts up, I don't, you know, they're not individualized. I, I do it to the room and I pretty much pick the splits off of what the bottom tier of the 2V and upper tier of the 3V, like the workouts are kind of set up for them. So the better kids in the room typically crush the workouts. They're faster than the posted splits. And the middle of the room is either just on them or right ahead of them. And then the back of the room has a chance to get them. So they have kind of like a carrot dangled in front of them of like, I could move up if I can get to this score. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're, and, uh, yeah. And that's kind of my way of saying uh, subtly, you know, maybe this isn't for you, right? Like if your 2K is nine minutes, right? I'm not going to set up an individualized workout for you to oh, 2K plus 20 off your nine minute 2K. It's like, we're just going to, this is a reasonable score for someone who works out every day for nine months. If you're not hitting it, uh, you know, that's not, that's not going to be super enjoyable for you, but um, this is pretty much the bare minimum of like what you need to do to be competitive. You're, you're here because you say you want to be competitive. Um, here's your evaluation. You know what, what makes this so hard to argue against you is uh, you have a national championship a month ago and a year ago, almost uh, a year ago, you had the winning eight at Worlds and your position to hopefully repeat that. So it's kind of hard to argue against this mentality, this, this style of coaching, considering Gladstone lived by this, right? And all his success. Well, I mean, we did more at Cal, but that's, you know, the national champion division one college team, right? Like this is, is, some of these kids are 15. So some of these kids start off their career being people who just do practice and by senior year, adding supplementary workouts to their practice. Um, and it's, I just think it kind of lets the athlete kind of self-govern their, how they feel physically um, and mentally. And I feel like we've had, you know, very little injuries. We've had very little burnout for a team as big as ours. And we, we did win nationals this year, but we've been in every grand final for eight years. Um, that's a, that's, that's harder to do than win a national championship. Um, Cause not, I mean, someone wins a national championship every year, but being there. It's like, it's like the Golden State Warriors. It's like the Warriors, right? Like what? Seven championship appearances in nine years, something like that. 10 years. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, we're going to be, we've been amongst the best teams for a long time. We've had loads of different athletes and loads of different types of athletes come through those top boats um, and I think it's, you know, the workouts we do on the water are also not super long. I don't know if, if that's where we're going with this conversation. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I want to know next, right? So you're doing, you're doing minimal, I wouldn't say minimal, but you're doing half the amount of erg training that most other teams are doing. So I want to, I want to talk about that word minimal, because that's a great way. Cause that, I feel like that's how our stuff is described. It's described like we just want to get done with practice or we don't want to be there or it's, we're just trying to cut corners. Like I find that description of what we do, you know, just really dumb. Like it's not to me. Minimal is how much effort you exerted in practice, not how long you wrote. Again, back to the whole uh, eight hour marathon. Great job. Put the sticker on your car. You wrote all day. Good for you. Uh, but at no point did you go as fast as we went at no point. So you practiced eight hours going slow. That's what you practiced. You practiced being slow. I have no interest in practice being slow. Um, I, never, I never walked around dribbling a basketball, trying to be good at basketball. I was running and seeing if I could make moves and make shots as fast as I could go, as hard as I could go. Um, did I stop and work on some technical stuff before? Like, or were there technical points of practice? Absolutely. Absolutely. But like at the end of the day, you know, you can, you can make a shot wide open when you're not out of breath and no one in your face, you know, a lot easier than you can when the pressure's on and there's somebody next to you and you're tired and you have to hit a certain time standard. Um, so that's, that's what we're set up to do. And I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, I give them a lot of rest in between pieces. Like we work on really refining how to go fast and not how to get in shape, 
not how to row a way that is perfectly beautiful to everyone's opinion. Um, we row hard, we row tenacious, we row fast, and that is what we're practicing. And I say it all the time, you're going to, how you practice is how you'll race. So, you know, we, our, our goal is to be in front and to be in a rhythm that's sustainable. And if somebody can beat that, then, you know, good on them, hats off to you. Um, congrats. Uh, we'll, we'll try to find a way to get better or find a few better athletes the next season. So let, let's move into the water workouts. Let's move yep. into being on the water, right? So give me a, give me, give me like a, an April week in Chicago. Um, sure. We'll do three by six minutes. Um, and like mostly in the, you know, maybe we'll do the opening minute with a start and a shift and then we'll shift down to like 26, but full power racing uh, for the rest of it. Um, in between those pieces, there's probably about 15 minutes rest, I'd say. Um, we'll do three by, three by a thousand meters, also with about 15 minutes rest in between each one. Are those active rests is, or is that just sit in the boat, relax, calming down? Um, well, so we use, we use the time in between the pieces to kind of row back to where we started and talk about what we liked about the piece, what we didn't, and maybe throw in some drills on the way back to address a problem or amplify a strength. Um, but uh, yeah, they're pretty much back to 100% or 99 by the time we start. Let me, let me stop you really quick. This, this, um, I, I, you know, I talked to a lot of coaches and, and you said we talked to the coach, we talked to the athletes about what's going on. As a coach, do you focus on one point of contact in the boat or do you sort of like let the, the group have a say in what's going on? What do you mean? Do I just give them feedback or do I bring no, them? No, no, no. I mean, um, like this three seat, two seat stroke, do they all have something to say about the piece or do you typically focus on one person? Like, do you just go to the coxswain and say, what's going on? How are we feeling? Yeah, I usually talk to the coxswain first, but yes, I let other people um, talk about it because... The coxswain uh, isn't always the most knowledgeable person in the boat, but what the coxswain does have is the splits and um, can give you, you know, stretches of maybe stretches of time where, or, you know, or she could be like, Hey, we hit a log. I mean, there's just stuff that she might know that I don't. Um, but uh, yeah, I definitely want to hear from the rowers too, you know, what they're feeling, you know, like if the rate, like maybe we couldn't get the rating up. And the coxswain is saying to me, you know, we couldn't get the rating up. Okay. Maybe she, she's probably not going to know as much about why as maybe the stroke or the six seat might know. So you're, you're taking out, you're taking out a varsity eight and a JV eight yep. and you're giving them equal time with the coach, right? So you're, you want to hear what's going on in the JV eight. You also want to hear what's going on in the V eight. Is that fair? Yep. We just do, we, we end the piece. We'll kind of go over to each boat, go over what I saw, go over what they felt talk about what we liked if we want to replicate work you know sometimes the speech is about let's replicate that and make sure it's the way we row and not just you know catching lightning in a bottle for one piece or it's like hey like you know we talked about being quicker off the front end and you guys were hanging your blades again and you know stopping and you know taking too long to get to get the boat speed back moving um and talking about adjusting that for the next one and then maybe do some some drills to you know, kind of lighten up the front end on the way back to the line. All right. So you got, you got two workouts so far. What else you got rolling on for the week? Um, then we'll do twenties or thirties. Um, you know, those tend to have very short rests in between. Um, and we're looking to see how the crews move at different ratings throughout the year. Um, we have a lot of current in our river and we also have extremely cold water that becomes warm water. Um, so the load, that we're racing into or is behind us is, is very different. And it's, it's changing, you know, throughout the weeks as the weather changes. Um, so we're trying to figure out what, what is the new rating we're most efficient, efficient at with that workout. And it's also just a great uh, workout because um, you get short rest, short sample sizes, and you can still have those conversations in between pieces. Like, Hey, you guys were, coming too fast up the slide on that one. That's, you know, you were getting the rate on the recovery. You know, you gotta, you gotta wind the boat speed up through the drive, 
Um, let's work on that on the next one. We'll do the same rate, three to build on this one. Um, then typically Fridays, our river is such a zoo with uh, tour boats and people drinking in pontoon boats and kayaks and jet skis that we pretty much just punt Friday. So Friday is kind of just a day where we go out and just maybe work on a technical weakness or, or try to just feel better about a technical strength. So it's a pretty light, light practice on Friday. We, we go out there with the intention of we, we are not getting a, a piece in today. Um, just, it's just what the river allows. And then Saturday, we pretty much do two by 2000 meters. Full race, like that, that, that's a race, race prep, right? Exactly how you see it. Yeah, empty the tank, full race. And then, um, you know, depending on how that goes, we either have the second piece um, be a piece where like, that was great. Let's see if we can do it again. Um, or we really screwed that first piece up. Let's see if we can beat piece one on piece two. And then same thing with this consistent 15 minutes in between, or do you go a little bit longer for a rest? Yeah, probably more, probably like 30. Wow. And then, so, and that's, so that's a pretty consistent week over week, right? I mean, that's, that's very consistent what you do throughout the entire spring. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's just so nonchalant. You know what I mean? Like I, I have these conversations with coaches they're like, well, we're doing, uh, you know, we're doing specific drills and we're changing our rigging every fourth day and i know you get like i could see you getting like oh, god i want to hear this crap but i hear such a different it's story so weird i mean it would be like a basketball player just talking about how tight his shoes were or something it's it just gets so like you just get in your head i mean yes you have to have the boat rigged you have to have it at a reasonable place to um you know be able to generate enough force on your blade and there are definitely scenarios where there's people who have an extremely different body frame that shouldn't be just having to live with an extremely vanilla rig but for the most part like you're not going to lose the race because oh i was at 85 and they were at 84 and how we just couldn't overcome it that that was it the, the pin was a centimeter different that's why i lost it's like you're going to lose a lot if that's what you think like you're you need to look at yourself and say you lost because someone was a superior physical being than you were and you need to work on that you need to change that not move your pin a centimeter so all right mike i i i got a chance to interview you and the and your team when you came off the water got your medal uh you're 30 days out right uh walk me through that final so walk how do you how, looking back on it man walk me through that final what you saw and what you felt in that championship moment um, that was an incredible race. I mean, that was, uh, was one of the best races I think I've, I've watched, um, <laughs> anywhere. Um, the crews in there with Greenwich being a crew that has beaten us, um, in the grand final, uh, for the majority of those appearances, um, and a crew that we had beaten earlier in the year, um, but certainly somebody that is always fast um, and had won the national championship the year prior. Um, being in that race was, was a big deal. Uh, Roe America Rye, who was the uh, New York champion again, and a crew that had gotten a silver medal the year before, came back with a lot of kids who had done well at the previous national championship. Um, ourselves had an incredible season. Um, you know, that, that lineup that we had in there um, had never hadn't really been challenged you know anytime they lined up uh with anybody until that race they had won won pretty easily um and we had marin from the west coast who was just annihilating everybody out there and uh you know and knowing some of the great rowers they had in that boat from coaching the national team and also you know starting my coaching career at marin and working with Sandy Armstrong, who, you know, I think you could argue is the best junior women's coach ever. Um, you know, you knew they were, they were going to be, you know, a handful. And we did the, the time trial and all the, all the times were really close. Um, I think we ended up beating Marin in the time trial by like, you know, 0.4 or something like that. 
So it, it was it was setting up to be the uh, war we all thought was coming. And uh, with Greenwich, I think Rye actually won the time trial uh, by less than a second over us. And, you know, Mercer was in there. Greenwich was right there. I mean, it was all really tight. Um, the semifinals, I think, were a little more telling. Um, and you could just see the way I, I, the semifinals of nationals are always so exciting for me because you get to just you get to see for real what people can do and, and how they like to do it. And seeing Marin blast off the way that they did was just incredible. Like, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a, a team go that fast off the line. And we had we had had a pretty good start all year. I mean, we, we hadn't been down in a race. Um, and in our semifinal, we we got out and, and handled the, the field as well. But um, it was pretty clear that that they were going to be in front unless something drastic happened. Um, so it was an interesting, it was an interesting meeting to have with our crew. Um, cause you, you certainly don't want to tell a crew that's been that dominant and that good and that confident that you're pretty sure they're going to be losing, um, in the beginning of the race. It was a tricky conversation to navigate. Um, but, uh, you know, the way I put it was, Hey, like we always, we always talk about who's moving when we come down from the high strokes. And if you're, ahead and being walked into, you know, not ideal. And if you're uh, down, but moving, you know, don't, don't feel like you're in a bad spot because that's, that's a good position. So um, they were pretty prepared to not be in front. And it was just a question of, can we stay with them? And can, can we maintain the boat speed the way we have all year? I mean, we, we definitely were a crew that I wouldn't say it was a second thousand crew. I think we were just a full 2K crew. Like we didn't have really a weak, a weak spot in our race plan. Um, and the final was really an example of that. We went 314 to the thousand and we finished at 628. So we pretty much even split at the race, which is almost impossible to do in an eight. It really is because like in a single or pair where it's, it's less people and you can really control the pace. Um, I mean, we have the split, but you know, if we're holding a 135 split, is it because the stroke seat's going nuts and the three seats backing off, you know, or are they all equally pushing that rate, you know, that, that split, it's pretty hard to do. Um, and they just, you know, they really, I mean, they were incredible. I mean, it was just really awesome to see a high school boat be completely unfazed um, and just stay on their pace. Just keep coming, just keep coming, just keep coming. And yeah, I couldn't, couldn't have been more proud of, of the win and the way we won. So where were you when you were watching the crew come down? I was just sitting in my truck. I was at the finish line tower and I heard your wife screaming, screaming, cheering yeah. them on, watching the Jumbotron. And you are sitting your ass in a truck in air conditioning, <laughs> not by the water, not watching. I mean, were you just watching on live feed? On your uh, phone? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, a lot of times I'll go and ride the bike, but I uh, had broken my shoulder and was forbidden from riding a bike. Um, although I did ride the bike for the semi and the time trial, but I figured um, I just, yeah, I just watched on the live feed um the the bike riding for the final is generally a bigger pack too so i figured there was a pretty pretty reasonable chance that i could get into a bike accident and re-damage my shoulder so i was trying to make a mature decision about that and stay away um but uh yeah i, I like i like being in the truck i didn't want to stand around and have people watch me watch the race you know yeah. so i just kind of just kind of was by myself watched it and you know was just kind of hoping the plan that we had in place would unfold and and it just it started to really right around 500 in you know it was kind of going the way we said this is how we think it's going to go if it's going our way and it just started to kind of unravel that way and it was like okay this is this is happening we were a little closer at the thousand we had taken the lead around 750 um and then we you know we stayed with it so, Mike, you've been doing this 70% uh, of your life, man. 70% of your life you've been in, in rowing. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a sport that you love. It's a sport that you're obsessed with. But you also are a fan of football, of basketball. Like, you're, 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 you're an all-around athlete. Um, 
is the love for the sport continuing to grow? Like, do you just love it more and more every single year? I mean, 70% of your life, this is, this is I it. Love, your career. I don't, I don't love the sport. I think the, like the racing um, and like the regattas and, and the way it all goes, I just, it's, it's too much and it's not, it's not very enjoyable. I think it's very, um, it's, it's just a monstrosity of an event each time we go to a, a race. Um, I wish it was a lot more direct and, um, you know, straightforward. Um, but so in terms of loving the sport, uh, I still kind of feel the way I felt when I was a freshman. I think for the most part, it's pretty frustrating um, and kind of annoying at times and uh, pretty hard to explain to somebody who doesn't, uh, who understands sports, but has never been to rowing. Um, but uh, in terms of, but I do love coaching and I do love being able to, you know, work with, you know, young athletes who are very, very driven people who want to succeed in not just rowing, but everything they do and just kind of helping guide them and helping them harness that really driven energy that really just, you know, these are people that are just going to be successful and just being able to, to get with them and say, Hey, like, I just, I just want to help you guys harness the power you have as a group into something that will manifest on a race course, um, with victory. And if it doesn't, you know, the process of you guys coming together, working together and taking a group like that and, you know, being not okay with losing, but okay with how well um, we went out and performed um, is that to me is why I love what I'm doing. Um, the regattas are like a necessary evil almost. They don't have to be, but the way it's set up now, that's, that's kind of how it feels. And I'll tell you, I, I, I loved every minute of this conversation you and I had. I learned a couple of things that I didn't know about you. Um, and I'm excited after all that we talked about, I'm excited to see the reactions of some of the coaches and athletes that hopefully tuned in and listened to this entire thing or watched the entire thing. Cause I think your perspective is spot on. Um, I, I find it so funny that you say you don't love the sport anymore. Uh, after all this time, I think that it's hilarious. Wow, man. Uh, I love the athletes and I love like the energy, but I, I mean, like we could, I feel like we could do anything else and be the same feeling. Well, anyone, Anyone tuning in, this is episode 101, and I really hope that you had a chance to enjoy listening to what they're doing over in Chicago. Mike, Kamish, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, more from us next week, episode 102, and we're getting more into the technical side. You just heard what Chicago does. We'll see what's next. Later. Later.